Hey everybody, it's Brian. I wanted to let you know that we have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Fair warning though, the video cuts out about 20, 25 minutes before the end of the episode, so you'll get to see me and a special guest co-host talking to uh, Corey from 12 Tone for about an hour, and then the last 20 minutes uh, we don't have the video, but it's still a great video, and you should totally sign up for our Patreon and totally watch it. We're actually going to do a proper beginning to this show for once, because not only do we have an exciting guest, we do have a somewhat unusual combination today. Uh, <laughs> stepping in for our dear Layton, we have the one and only Jarek Centeno, our producer. Hi, Jarek. Uh, thank you for having me, Bri. No, of course, anytime. And uh, mystery guest. I'm so oh, excited that whoa, you're whoa, here. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh. Wow, going straight to that. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm just going to introduce this podcast straight up <laughs> right away. So I introduced Jarek. We're going to introduce the podcast. This is Late Night with Brian Wecht. Already introduced Jarek, which I actually should have said the podcast title first, but that's okay. We're just kind of going to roll with this. Now, Jarek, you can do your mystery guest thing. Thanks. I zoned out. I'm excited for our mystery guest to be on today. So mystery guest, I'm excited we can make this happen. Would you care to introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Corey, and I am the person behind the YouTube channel 12 Tone. Amazing. Hell yes. yes. Jarek and I are both big fans of your channel. Thank you. Would you call yourself an, a music educator? Is that fair to say? First and foremost, I'm just someone who likes thinking about music. Yeah. And I'm putting that out there, and it can be educational, I, th I think is hopefully educational. That's sort of what I'm going for. Yeah. But like, first and foremost, I just think of myself as someone who's really passionate about this and wants to talk about it to whoever will listen, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that absolutely comes across in your videos, your passion and love and knowledge Thank you. of music and combining it with the art too. It's such a great conceit. It's so effective too. Thank you. When I first heard of your channel, I was like, oh, sick. It's like, you know, a channel all about serialism. Yeah. Which I'm sure people have said to you <laughs> before. Yeah. At the time, I, I had just sort of finished my bachelor's in music. And so like 12-tone serialism was kind of the most advanced sort of music thing that I knew about. And so mm -hmm. that, was, that was part of the inspiration. But like, I don't think I've actually done a serialism video for six years. Now. I was looking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't see any recent ones. Yeah. They're in there, but you have to go way back to before anything I was making was worth watching. Yeah. For those people out there who don't know, do you want to explain what serialism is and how it relates to 12-tone? Yeah. First of all, it's exciting to be on a podcast that recently talked about serialism. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, serialism was sort of a um, fairly, I mean, brief, honestly, movement in the early 20th century in certain parts of the sort of classical-ish music world. Uh, classical is a weird word to throw around in music history sure. for reasons that I don't necessarily need to get into, but what most people think of as classical. This was like the second Viennese school basically decided that over the course of the 19th century, over the course of the Romantic period, music was getting more and more dissonant and more and more experimental with harmony, at least, and you were getting longer and longer stretches where nothing was resolving and you were like constantly changing keys. Mm -hmm. And so... Arnold Schoenberg and the people he worked with had this idea of just like, well, what if we just did that? What if we had believe the term roughly translated that he used was like liberate the dissonance mm -hmm. and just make a system that had a structure, but that structure was not interested in consonants or resolutions. And so the idea that he had was that you would take all 12 of the notes in standard tuning and you would put them in a specific order called a row and then you would play each of the 12 of them. And you would not be able to go back to the start until you had played all 12. And there were sort of permutations that you could do. You could play it upside down or backwards or stuff like that. But everything you did had to be built around this row that you were using over and over again in different combinations, in different ways. And it's one of those things that like gets talked about a lot in like academic music circles because it's a really interesting mathematical idea. It's actually was not like a hugely popular thing at 
any point in history, but like it lets you draw really pretty graphs, right? Like one of the things you can do with it is you can do like what's called a 12 tone matrix where you do like a 12 by 12 grid that has all of the notes Mm -hmm. and you do like the row on top and then going, was it the retrograde going down? I forget. I always forget. Yeah. Which is which. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's the inversion going down because the retrograde, you can go just read the same row backwards. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you can get this like 12 by 12 grid of notes that looks very mathematical and yeah. it's very like interesting. And, you know, theorists love that sort of thing. Have you ever read that book by, I think it's Alan Forte, The Structure of Atonal Music? I haven't read the book fully. I've read parts of it because I've, I've done some work on like fort numbers and stuff. Is it pronounced fort? It's not forte, it's fort. I got in trouble with this the first time I talked oh, about him okay. in a video. I didn't know about this. It's sort of similar to like the Robert Moog thing where like yes. <laughs> you can always tell when it's someone's first time saying that name in public because they'll yeah. say Moog. But yeah, similarly, it's it's Alan Fort. To be fair, it's not my first time saying the name in public. However, yeah, yeah. it is my first time saying it in front of someone who knew what they were talking about. So, and, <laughs> totally and I appreciate the correction. I screwed this up and I got plenty of people in my like comment section as well being like, oh, it's, it's Alan Fort. Okay, good to know. Because it's spelled the same way as the music word forte. There's an E at the end, so it's... People say this about the French word that's been borrowed into English, whether it's, you know, your area of expertise, which some people say fort and some people say forte. Yeah. Yeah, I like that book because, you know, I'm I'm a math person originally, and it's basically like a number theoretic music theory kind of description of, of, yeah. of the style of composition. I do think it's important to say with the serial stuff, although... You can accurately say it wasn't very popular. It was for a long time considered the way serious academic composers write. Oh, yeah. Very influential. Yeah, very influential. And up until probably the 60s or so, you know, in between whatever it was, 1930 to 1960, if you wanted to be a PhD composer at a university or whatever, you needed to be writing serial music because that was considered what serious music was. Yeah, that's kind of why I instinctively sort of stressed that it wasn't actually as huge an impact because it's just like because it was very impactful in the academic world. And I love the idea of serialism. As a music theorist, I love thinking about serialism. But like, I like listening to Rob Zombie and I can't necessarily do Fort style, like musical set theory analysis on Dracula, particularly usefully, you know? Yeah, well, I think like any system, it should properly be considered a tool you can use if you feel like it. And it's not right or wrong or better or worse. It is just a thing. And if you like triadic harmony, great, have fun. If you like serial stuff, that's awesome. If you like, you know, atonal noise, fuck yeah, great, go have fun. You know, there's no right or wrong way to, to make it. It's such a shame that at least for, you know, academic musicians for so long, it was like every fucking other thing in academia. <laughs> if you're not doing it this way, yeah, you're not going to get hired. For context, I was a, uh, an academic for a while. I was a physicist. So I did theoretical physics and I was a string theorist. And there were a few years in my academic journey to get a job where it's like, yeah, we're not hiring string theorists anymore. <laughs> you know, now we're just hiring people who work on this thing this year. And especially in the humanities, I think it's even more faddish in terms of hiring. Yeah, I'm curious, Jark, do you have any experience with serial music at all? I don't. No. My classical music training ended in my senior year of high school. I didn't take my senior year of high school band seriously. You mean like concert band in high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Concert band. Concert and jazz band. But I was in concert band. I remember like visually not taking it seriously. I just remember never like playing during class. But just like shredding during the concert, though. <laughs> what did you play? What did you play in concert band? I played alto sax, alto sax and jazz, bro. Um, as well. What? Hold on. <laughs> Wait a minute. How have we not talked about? Have we talked about this? I don't think we've talked about this. I think we have. Yeah, vaguely. Oh wow, brutal takedown. <laughs> no, we've talked about this vaguely. The alto sax is like my first instrument. I for totally forgot this. Yeah. Well, because I forget everything these days due to my advanced age. <laughs> but the I was sax and concert band all the way, for sure. Right. Mostly Barry. Corey, what are your instruments? I know you're a vocalist. Yeah. So my degree is in vocal performance. Also, like I suspect you're aware you can't really get a degree in music in the United States without learning a little piano. Sure. So I have some background in that as well. I also 
took bass lessons in high school. At this point, I would say that I am much more a theorist than I am a performer of any particular instrument. Yes, a person after my own heart. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have an instrument that I would necessarily feel comfortable doing a gig with, right? Like, Right, right. If I was, it would probably be vocals, but I'm a baritone. And so like even trying to do rock vocals back when I was in shape, a lot of that stuff is for tenors. And so... Yeah, yeah. If you needed me to sing like Aqualung right now, I could probably do that. I'm not going to because, you know. I think that's a wise move. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> uh, I did actually like somewhat recently just do a thing for a friend's video where she needed to play Bodies by Drowning Pool. Oh, yes, of course. Wanted to avoid the copyright thing. And so just mm-hmm. asked me to record vocals over a karaoke track. Mm-hmm. And so. There is just a recording of me singing the opening part of Bodies by Drowning Pool on YouTube now. I just shared this with a friend who I couldn't believe hadn't seen it. The parrot video, the parrot version of this. I mean, a classic video. (laughs) Yeah, hadn't seen it probably for, I feel like, 10 years and then watched it recently. Fucking great stuff. Yeah. You're a physicist. You can relate to this. There are sort of theoretical physicists and experimental physicists. Yep. I'm a theoretical musician, right? Mm -hmm. That's much more what I do these days. Yeah, which I think is great. And I love that there is now a place for a theoretical musician outside of academia. You know what I mean? Like because of YouTube and the stuff you do on it, that's a real job where you don't have to be at a university (laughs) and it's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's been really cool. And like I actually recently uh, gave a talk at a music theory pedagogy conference about uh, the history of music theory YouTube. I mean, there's not a lot of us, right? Like I would say- No, for sure. Probably less than a dozen people are doing music theory YouTube professionally full-time. Right. I think it's been really great to be able to take what's sort of happening in academic spaces. Because like, as much as, as like you were saying, that a lot of this does follow fads and follows trends and tends to be very over-focused on like canonic works and stuff like that, there is also a lot of really interesting work going on that mm-hmm. you'd never really see because it never really leaves the academy. And so being able to be sort of a conduit for some of that and to like read some of these papers, read some of these books. A while ago, I remember I I did a video about an idea from someone's PhD dissertation and uh, he retweeted it and was like, okay, thanks to this video, more people have heard of my PhD dissertation in the last 48 hours than in the three years since I published it. Oh, yeah. I think about stuff like that all the time. So when I was a a scientist, like a top tier paper, like top-tier paper is 500 or more citations. Like, the super yeah. elite status is like 1,000 or more. Yeah. If I put out a video and it got 500 views, I'd be like, well, nope. <laughs> you know, at this point yeah. in my career, that would be a disaster, right? Yeah. And when you're starting out, different story. But once it's your job, yeah. Once it's your job, and, you know, I'm 14 years deep into a YouTube career at this point, If we put out a video and they typically get hundreds of thousands of views, you know, whatever for my band, and we put one out and it kind of capped at 500, it'd be like something went really, really wrong. My point being not that our videos get a lot of views, but that the reach for a YouTube video is so much bigger than an academic paper. Are you so you're reading journals like regularly or semi regularly? I mostly primarily read a journal called Music Theory Online because they publish for free and I don't have institutional access. Right. If I see something in like music theory spectrum that I'm really interested in, I might like reach out to a friend of mine who has access or whatever and like ask if they can send me a copy. But it's so much easier to look through a list of things where I can just click a link and be like, okay, I want that. Don't even get me started on like academic publishing and how expensive it is Mm -hmm. and what a fucking racket. It's a nightmare, yeah. It's one of those things that, like, I think a lot of people coming into this are under the impression that, you know, if they pay for the journal subscription or if they buy the article or whatever, they're supporting the author. They're supporting the person who did the work. Basically, none of that goes to the person who wrote it. It all just goes to the journal. So yeah, the more I talk to, like, academics, they're just like, get access however you want. We don't care. It's fine. You know, a lot of people view academics as a pretty cushy job, which it certainly by many standards is, but what it also requires is for you to do an absolutely insane amount of unpaid labor 
including, for example, refereeing papers. Like, I don't think people yeah, yeah. appreciate that referees generally do not get paid. No. There was one journal that I refereed for, which would pay, but it was like a 20 bucks a paper for something you're putting yeah. sometimes days of work into. It, it's really part of it, which is just an institutional, you know, cultural yeah. norm, unfortunately. It's a complicated problem. And certainly as more and more academic yeah. positions become non-tenure track and the ones that are tenure track are not even paid that well relative to the private sector, which whatever, that's yeah. a whole other fucking thing. It's a whole deal. Yeah. Okay. For those of you still listening who we haven't totally alienated with academic <laughs> discussions, let's bring it back to some pop stuff because a lot of your channel does do pop music, you know? Yeah. I was watching, it was one of your videos from a few years back, like the top mistake songwriters make or oh, what's it called? Was it the surprising enemy of good songwriting? Was it that Yeah, one? something like that yes. where it was essentially trying too hard to look cool. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, what a fucking great explanation for so much of what I dislike or trying too hard to be clever, I think is what you said. Yeah. So most of the music I write these days is comedy. And a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now, the trying too hard to be clever is something that absolutely kills funny, yeah. right? Like if you're really pushing it, you know, to make a joke, the moment you start to sound like you're being too high-minded about it or talking down to people or whatever, yeah. you absolutely kill the joke. And exactly the same thing. It's such a fine line, especially in instrumental music. I think you said something yeah. in that video, like, you know, just because you know a chord doesn't mean you shouldn't use a chord, which I yeah. think is <laughs> a really good <laughs> observation. It's such an interesting balance to me, the, you know, hey, I know all this shit. Look, I'm, I'm a trained, you know, jazz pianist or whatever between like, okay, you don't have to deploy that like a fucking machine gun, you know, every time yeah. you write a song. You're not trying to achieve a record for chords per measure or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that, that video was inspired by like, you know, like I said, I have a degree in vocal performance, which means I spent quite a bit of time in a music school environment, which is great in a lot of ways. But you do very quickly foster this idea of like music as a competition, right? Yes. Like in the vocal department, a lot of that was like range, right? We would sit there and see who could hit the higher note. A lot of that in sort of guitar departments is about speed and is about like playing a million notes. And there's this, you know, reputation that like a lot of music school graduates have of just like coming in to an audition, playing a million notes per second and it's boring and it's like really impressive. <laughs> like, yeah, really cool that you can do that. But like, I would rather you just play a couple interesting notes. Mm -hmm. And so that's it's sort of this tendency when you get all of this, and especially in that sort of environment, people are friends, you're supporting everyone else. But like, there is still this sense of competition, sort of yeah. collegial competition between friends. But it's just like, oh, I can do this better. I can do this faster. And the problem with art is that better is not like a measurable thing. Right. For the most part, I think that's a great thing about art. But like in this particular context, you have this problem where, you know, how do I determine which one of us is the better singer, right? Like mm -hmm. that's so down to like your experience of us singing through a thing, unless I can just say, oh, it's range or like, oh, it's like how fast you can do runs. Unless you quantify it, basically. Yeah, you, you need to like have a metric and none of those metrics are actually the same thing as musical quality. But like once you get into that headspace, it's so much easier to treat them as metrics of musical quality than it is to like step yeah. back and focus on what makes your music interesting. And like I said, in that video, the main story that I was telling was about like me doing this in my own writing mm -hmm. and about like trying to do a thing that was like really complicated and hard to sing. Now, this was just a part I was writing. I wasn't even singing it. This was for a friend of mine. But like I gave her that part. And like, she just couldn't sing it. Like, I'm pretty sure that in the final performance, she just sang a simplified version of it, which is what I should have given her anyway. Right. I just, I wanted to show that I could write a cool line like this, especially this was for like my senior jury, which was like a final performance that I was getting graded on to see if I would graduate. Yeah. And so I wanted to show off, but nothing I was doing in that actually <laughs> made the song better. Yeah. I was thinking about this in the context of jazz recently with like bebop players yeah. where, you know, at some point in the 40s or so, you know, kind of after the advent of Charlie Parker and others, it was like, all right, 
how many fucking notes can you get in here? <laughs> and it's sort of like became kind of like a macho kind of like dick swing sort of thing yeah. where it's just like, you know, and some of it is, of course, great. Yeah. And then you have a kind of chiller, like a Dexter Gordon in, in the context of jazz. Yeah. Who is all about lines and melody. And it is somewhat the equivalent, speaking glibly, of serialism taking over where there's this tendency yeah. towards unpopular complexity, shall we say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as, as we saw, you know, jazz, which used to be the popular music in the early 20th century, kind of as time has gone on, here we are a hundred years later, there's still a vibrant community of jazz musicians, but jazz has gone very much into academics now, yeah. right? And a lot of the most active jazz people out there is certainly plenty of working jazz musicians, but a lot of it is now stuff that happens on colleges, you know, or on yeah. university campuses. And it's such an interesting thing, this movement from popular to, hey, let's make everything really complicated. Oh, wait, it's so complicated that no one outside of this world understands it anymore. Yeah. Oh, the people who spend time understanding it are academics. Okay, now I guess this is an academic thing. There's definitely like a tendency in some music circles, especially academic ones, to sort of value the idea that most people don't get it. That makes it better and more serious. It's such bullshit. I think that things like, you know, the sheets of sound approach, things like serialism, things like all of these like super fast whatever's like they have their place. There are definitely sure. times where they totally work. But there's a reason that one of my favorite jazz albums of all time anyway, I wouldn't necessarily say my favorite, but kind of blue, right? Sure. Best-selling jazz album of all time, yeah. right? There's a reason, and like it's very accessible, right? You can listen to it, and you're hearing melodies. And like, I don't want to like talk down to anyone who does enjoy that, no, like no, super advanced, like complicated, fast stuff. That, that's I mean, cool too. Like, I like that stuff. It's just time and place. The main thing that like I try to emphasize on these sorts of things is like it's fine if you don't. Like, it doesn't make you a less yeah. nuanced music fan. It doesn't make your musical tastes more basic. It just means you're not into this thing that is in many cases trying to be impenetrable. Not always, but like often, like you look at things like, you know, math metal or whatever. And like part of the point of math Hell metal yeah. is like, you're really supposed to have to work very hard in order to appreciate it. And that's fine <laughs> if you want to put in the effort, but it's also fine if you don't. It's funny you have these two poles, which are like the really simple stuff all kind of sounds the same. And then the really complicated <laughs> stuff all kind of sounds the same. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's only too much like do, 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 you know, like crazy bleeps and bloops in odd time signatures, you know, that you can really listen to before you're like, wait, which song is this? Although <laughs> I'm curious what you both think about this. So when you have like these really complicated pieces, like someone I've mentioned on this podcast before, like a Fernie Ho or someone like that, yeah. who's doing like, you know, you look at these scores and you're like, what the fuck is going on <laughs> here? Do people who write really complicated music, is that what they hear? Or are they just kind of writing it down and being like, this seems like a reasonable thing to try. You know what I mean? Is that like their vision that they're transcribing from their head? Or is it like, I'm just kind of going for a thing here? Mm, that's a great question. I feel like in my personal experience, I feel like when I try to write stupid, complicated drum beats that nobody understands, I feel like that's me just trying to fly spaghetti at the wall. Yeah. Corey, what do you, what do you think? The boring, but I believe correct answer is it depends. Sure, of course. Back in college, yes. in one of my performance classes, for various reasons, I wound up writing a song that used six different time signatures, mm -hmm. the simplest of which would be 1416, but it was the sort of song where it had to be 1416, not 78. Uh -huh. So, you know, in, infer what you want from that as to what I was doing. <laughs> but, like, I definitely was writing down what I wanted, what I was hearing, right? Like, or mm -hmm. what I imagined and what I was feeling. I didn't intend to write this really complicated thing. It just sort of happened. And so in, in that case, it was very much just me having a vision and that vision needing all of these different types of complexity or really just the rhythmic sure. complexity. The other stuff wasn't that complicated. Let's call that fripping. Yeah, yeah, really complicated rhythms were just like what I needed and each section needed its own different time signature in order to do what I wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, sort of basically doing an additive meter thing, which is 
If I say the name Sean Crowder, is that a name you guys are familiar with? Why do I think he's like a Christian artist? Uh, you might be thinking Steven Crowder. Okay. That's the yes, one I was Steven thinking Crowder. of. No, I don't know Sean Crowder. So Sean Crowder, as far as I know, unrelated, uh, but he is Adam Neely's drummer. They have a band together. Yes. He can tap like a 99 to 100 polyrhythm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what the fuck? That's amazing. <laughs> I don't know who needs to but do that, but... <laughs> basically, what he says about it is that he's not actually like counting it or anything. It's just sort of like... It's a flam that sort of goes out more and more and then comes back in and you know, he sort uh-huh. of times that across 100 hits. You wouldn't really know if he had hit it 98 times instead. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And he wouldn't know, he wouldn't care. It's something that he can show off as like a really cool like party trick, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Whereas like being able to do like a good like two to three polyrhythm, sure. that has a clear musical impact. Whereas you know, if he goes like 98, 97, no one will know or care. Honestly, once you get above, I don't know, 20 or so, depending on the tempo, of course, it's going to be hard yeah. to really tell the tell the difference. You know, if you want to like get like really technical on this stuff, there's a thing in like psychology that comes up in music cognition called the just noticeable difference. Yep. Where they're just like you have to have a certain amount of difference between things for you to notice. And that that's a psychoacoustics effect. Yeah. And so like you can do this with like notes where I think generally, if I play you two consecutive notes, you can't consistently tell me which one is higher or lower unless they're at least like five to 10% of a half step apart. Mm. Your ear can't do that level of precision. And similarly, yeah. like, there's a similar thing with like beat perception, where like right. if I move a thing by like 10 milliseconds, like one attack, you can't tell. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's a range of people too, of course. And some yeah. people have finer tuning and can tell smaller spacing and other people have wider. Professional piano tuners can probably discriminate between notes at a much finer level than yeah. the average person. I just thought of this question, Brian, for you. Yeah. Going back to the spectrum of like complicated music that nobody cares about um, when it's purely just for yourself, what is one song in your catalog that is the like most complicated one that got basically simplified to an extreme. Well, I mean, most of the stuff I write is really simple rock stuff. I don't have much like that, even in the this upcoming Smooth Jazz album. There's not anything that I would consider actually complicated in the grand scheme of things. You know, I, I think for Ninja Sex Party, anything truly complicated doesn't get past the... I have two collaborators who have to like it phase. (laughs) And honestly, I'm not writing in that style. Anyway, you know, we have Mm. the one song that actually has like a little bit of a fainting towards math rocky kind of bridge, which is the release the Kraken song, which is not Mm. actually complicated. It just has a bridge in seven, eight, which ends with a measure of six. Like it's nothing complicated, complicated. It's just not four, four rock like most of our catalog is. So I, I don't have a good answer for that just because I tend not to write in that style. I did have a few things for the Smooth Jazz album, which were like, you know, harmonically weird, but ultimately I, I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, it feels yeah. like it's too much. So I, yeah, I don't have a great answer because I, I just don't write like that. Yeah, uh, this is a question for both of you. This question is inspired by another YouTuber's video, Nare Soul, where she was asking, what does cheesy or corny in music like mean to you? I feel like it's such a wide gamut. The only reason why I think about it is my brain just went straight to Kenny G. And as a saxophonist, sure. <laughs> every saxophonist I've came across besides you, Brian, has thought Kenny G is like off the bat cheesy. Oh, I agree with that. But why do people think like Kenny G's cheesy? And then what is your guy's spectrum that you would define cheesiness? I think cheesy is 99% production and 1% songwriting. You know, a lot of it, it's probably relative. Yes. And definitely moves with time and perception, right? Like a lot of stuff that probably you would have written off as kind of corny or cheesy in, let's say, the late 70s, early 80s is now back in again because of precisely the production 
that was being used, you know, sparkly synths and extended harmonies and, you know, inappropriately used saxophones and things like that, (laughs) that were very popular at a time and then became, look at this overproduced bullshit and now are like, oh, actually, you know, Michael McDonald fucking rules. And why did we ever think this was too much? But it's very personal, I think, too. Yeah. Corey, do you agree with that? I agree with you that a lot of it is sort of sounding dated, sounding like a thing that we used to do and we is no longer popular. Because, you know, a lot of the progression of art is in response to previous art. Sure. Basically, every artistic movement can be understood as a rejection of some component of whatever was popular previously. 100%. And so whatever that component is starts to become cheesy. I think the other thing for me that like ties into that is that when it feels like you're doing a thing to sound generic and you know that and you know that I know that and you want me to know that you know that I know that, <laughs> you know, as you get into that, those yeah, levels yeah. of just like doing like one, six, four, five, and like I'm doing yes. it because we all know one, six, four, five. There's still lots of great ways to deploy that sort of chord progression, but like you get this sense that you're just doing it because you know that it will play to the cheap seats. Again, I, I don't want to get too into like, you know, the sort of elitism, because I don't believe that you have to do complicated things in order to be interesting. Sure, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. But like, when it feels like you're doing simple things and like dated things and predictable things because you feel like that's just going to sell, you know? Yeah, that, right. That can wind up feeling to me fairly corny, fairly cheesy. It doesn't feel like this is your artistic vision. It just kind of feels like you don't have one and you're supplement, you're yeah. replacing it with, and which obviously is a judgment call on my part. I can never know an artist's mind. I am guessing. But like, you know, if I hear something that just sounds extremely generic, I mean, when I think cheesy, I think Ice Ice Baby. Oh, okay. A lot of that is just like, okay, so you took the conventions of hip hop and- Under pressure. Yeah, and, and under pressure as well. But like you, you took sort of, a lot of the, the conventions of hip hop and dress them up in a way that like didn't really say anything. Yes. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and so that I think to me is sort of where it starts to feel like, you know, corny or cheesy, where it's just like, you're not saying anything and you're not doing anything interesting enough to justify not saying anything. Yeah. H- have we all seen the classic vanilla ice interview where he defends that it's different yeah. than under pressure? I haven't seen it. No, no, no. Oh, dude, it's the best. So I forget exactly what context this was. It might have been on MTV or something. And someone's like, so uh, I noticed that your song is very similar to Under Pressure. And he's like, no, it's totally different. (laughs) Under Pressure goes, but Ice Ice Baby goes, it's that ding at the end where she's like, that's that's everything. You know, it's from whatever that's 1992 or whatever it was. He eventually, I believe, bought partial rights to Under Pressure so that people would stop saying he copied it. I think, Corey, I like what you just said. Let me just say a thought I had while you were talking, which is that something that is truly novel could never be cheesy. Right. If there's something that is really new or experimental or weird is never cheesy. Yeah. Right. Yes. A lot of things you can say about Captain Beefheart. Cheesy is not one of them. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. I put Captain Beefheart firmly into the, I have a category of music, which is my wife will tell me to turn it off. And (laughs) so I I actually had a tweet about this uh, a couple of months back. I forget exactly how I phrase it, but it was something like, oh, great, date night. The perfect occasion for my Captain Beefheart slash fish playlist, (laughs) which is the, you know, 10 minutes in, can we please listen to something else? Or can you go go to your section of the house and listen to this crap? Because I don't need to hear Trey Anastasio on minute 16 of this 35-minute guitar solo. You know, I could talk about Captain Beefheart for a while. There is a lot of Captain <laughs> Beefheart stuff that I do like. And I try, I tried to play it for my now eight-year-old when she was a little bit younger. Because I try to, you know, in the words of Charles Ives' father, stretch her ears. And it works a little bit, but... Captain Beefheart was too far? Ant-Man B was not her favorite song. <laughs> <laughs> 
You hit two points in my cheesy palette, Corey, when I think of cheesy shit. Just a chord progression that includes like 6145, 145, any of that variation. I played in my church's worship band in like high school, and so many of those chord progressions was like 145. Sure. But it's not to say that you can't have a good song with like a 145 progression. Yeah. And also, cheesy doesn't mean bad either. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cheesy can be great. Right. Absolutely. And I think the other thing too that like is probably like the most prominent to me is what you said about playing to the cheap seats. Like as a composer, I'll hear a lot of score and I'm just like the temp music or whatever the producers or directors wanted. Yeah. They were just like, oh, we want a beautiful piano song or like a big heavy like Hans Zimmer soundtrack. And it just doesn't come off well. It's like they grabbed their whole like toolbox of whatever like splice or output or all these like companies like here's how to sound like Hans Zimmer and they just like bought all those sounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's just like playing to the cheap seats. Temp tracks are like a really interesting example with this and sort of reminds me a lot of people when they're watching Netflix will just put it on as something to watch in the background while they clean the house or cook dinner or whatever and a lot of Netflix shows are made on that assumption that that's how you're going to be watching it. They aren't built to reward deep engagement, which, you know, deep engagement can happen in a lot of ways, right? A lot of my favorite songs play four chord loops for the entire thing. Sure. When I pick the songs I'm going to analyze, I like do that via poll on my Patreon. And like, I'll, I'll pretty regularly get people being like, I like this song, but I don't think you can find anything to talk about. So I'm not going to vote on it. And that has never once been true. Every song that I care enough about and I enjoy enough to put on the poll I can find plenty to say about if I look deeply. If you have heard of that song, there's a reason you have heard of that song, right? So there's going to be something. Yeah. Even with stuff that is like on the surface, like quote unquote simple, there's often a lot more going on. Like the song I'm currently working on, this episode's going to be coming out after that video. So it's Zombie by the Cranberries. Oh yeah. Nice. The chord progression is one, five, six, four, but in minor. So Mm -hmm. that's one flat six, flat three, flat seven. But like, If you actually look at the voicing she's playing, it's not that. She's sort of doing some really interesting stuff with the chord voicing. In the intro, at least, she's leaving the E and B strings open to ring over all of them. And so when she gets to like the D major at the end, you get this thing that's like, is technically like D major, but it's actually this like weird jumble of notes that sounds kind of like harsh and dissonant. And like, it's really Mm -hmm. cool, but like... When I put it on the poll, I got someone be like, oh, yeah, it's just a classic, like, one flat six, flat three, flat seven. What are you going to have to say? And I was like, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> there's always something, is my experience. If you really like the song and you enjoy this and it means something to you, yeah. there's going to be something. This reminds me of one of my favorite bands from Canada. Um, they're called Always, A-L-V-V-A-Y-S. And I always look to them as, like, kind of a mixed reference. One of their biggest songs is, like, Marry Me, Archie. But it's just like straight up D major G and like C. And that Mm. is probably like the most basic chord progression. But I feel like just the way they sound from like a mix engineer's perspective, I don't think they would have the same reach or they would have the same impact if they were like super hi-fi. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. These things sounded like they were recorded on somebody's like four track cassette or like iPhone. Um, And I think about all the time when I'm mixing, I'm like, okay... If I make this song too hi-fi and I'm listening to the reference, if I stray too much away from this reference and make it too radio rock, it won't have the same effect and it actually will become corny. Yeah. Yeah. On the discussion of sort of corniness and cheesiness, we were talking about like things sounding dated, but flip side of that is like you look at folk music, right? Folk music sounds old, but it doesn't sound dated. And a lot of that is... yeah. Because of like production stuff where, you know, a lot of this is sort of either in person or live recordings or like very simplified production that sort of makes it feel like you're in the room. Then when you sort of strip out the pretension of like trying to do something impressive and just do things that people know and like with folk music, there are stories at the core. There is something that's being said. Especially like when people writing new folk songs in that style, like there's a tradition that they're evoking and there's ideas that they're evoking and they're sort of using that to express their artistry. And that makes it, to me, like almost immune to sounding cheesy. Yeah, it's timeless in a way. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a really weird sort of space between like timeless and dated that's hard to pin down exactly what makes it that. <laughs> but I think like you were saying, Brian, a lot of that is production yeah. where it's just like, you know, what does it sound like you're trying to do and are you doing that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. What's your relation with animation and what is the importance of the elephant in 12-tone videos? So the elephant comes from a mnemonic that we developed early on we had wanted to do a video about notation, sort of as a quick introductory thing that we could reference back to so people would know what we were doing when we were writing stuff. Because if you're doing like treble clef, bass clef, you just need mnemonics. Those are the only way to do it. And so like for bass clef, a friend of mine who worked with kids like recommended he used gummy bears don't feel anything. And we liked that. So we figured we'd roll with that. For treble clef, the one that I learned and the one I think most people learned is like every good boy does fine, which yes. mm-hmm. or deserves fudge or whatever. And just like it's boring. I didn't like it. I didn't want to use it. And so we sort of tossed around some ideas and I eventually settled on elephants grow big dangly faces. Oh, nice. So from there, we just sort of felt like we needed a couple icons that we could use as regular things. And we settled on elephants and gummy bears as a reference to that. And the gummy bears have sort of faded away. But the other thing with the elephants is that there's like, and this is very important because I'm not good at drawing, is that there's a very high like, cuteness to difficulty ratio. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of leeway for which I can get those lines to go in different ways and it won't necessarily come out the same every time, but it will always work and look good. And so it's a very forgiving drawing to do. So it it helps as something that I can do over and over throughout the video. Right. Yeah. I think your animations are amazing. How long have you been drawing or animating for and how long does like one episode or video take for you? I doodled basically forever whenever I had a piece of paper and a pen in front of me, but I was never like good at it. When I started 12 Tone, we actually had a different animator. I was working with a friend of mine for the first six months, and then he moved out of town. But at that point, it was either like I had to either take over or I had to stop making 12 Tone. And I liked making 12 Tone, so I figured I'd take over. And you go back and look at that early transition, the drawings are not very good. But like, really, in terms of like how long I've been drawing, I would say seriously, roughly since I took over drawing for 12-tone. Anything that I do at this point is skills that I developed over the seven or so years that I've spent animating. Yeah, close to seven now. Wow. And then, like, lastly, how long does it take you to make one video? The drawing, typically these days, I do it all in one take. That's important for the aesthetic. I was curious. It looks like that. I was curious about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there there is some leeway. You know, when I'm changing pages, there's enough visual motion that I can probably like sleight of hand onto a different shot if I really need to, but it looks so much better if I don't. Yeah. But that is typically about four to five hours straight, just like sitting in a chair drawing. That's discipline. I used to do it in just like the like dining room Ikea chair that I had as like (laughs) killing my back. And so eventually I I invested in like a really fancy office chair. Yeah. It's still not pleasant to sit in for five hours, but it's a lot better. Have you tried like a standing desk or something like that? I'm standing right now. Mind blowing revelation. (laughs) The problem is that I'm underneath the tripod and trying to get the tripod high enough that I can stand underneath it. Like I already have the chair a little bit lower than I might necessarily want. The tripod that I have uh, is actually on top of three chairs that themselves have like stacks of books and board games on them to get them high enough that I can sit under it. Mm -hmm. And I think if I tried to do a standing desk, I would just hit the ceiling. (laughs) We should point out that something really unusual has happened during this episode, which is we asked actual (laughs) interview questions for once, which is something we we basically never do. But there was was just some stuff we wanted to know. So, Jarek, thank you. I appreciate it. Yes. Let's move on to segments now. Our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment. It's where you get to talk about book, movie, video game, a painting, just some piece of something, art or culture out there in the world that you've been enjoying recently. The segment is called What's Poppin' and the theme song, which we add in post every week, and I'm always careful to point this out, goes here. What's Poppin'? What's poppin'? Great. Now, Corey, I want to ask you, had you heard that song, what would you have thought about it? Oh, I would have thought it was great. 
Thank you. See, <laughs> that's all I needed. I appreciate you. Huge theoretical fan. That's right. It's even more appropriate for this episode <laughs> because in theory, you heard it. It's yeah, it's, it's, it's like a lo-fi beat to hang out with, basically. Great. Exactly. Perfect. I love it. Jarek, why don't you start this week? What's popping? Yeah, what's popping with me is I am about three quarters of the way through HBO's and or Hulu's Abbott Elementary. Oh, is it rad? Everyone loves it. Yeah, created, directed by Quinta Brunson. Everybody might know Quinta Brunson from BuzzFeed from back in the day. I love it. It's a mockumentary, so it's very akin to like The Office or Parks and Rec. It's about these couple teachers, Quinta Brunson being the like main protagonist, all of them working at an elementary school in I think Philadelphia called Abbott Elementary. And just like kind of like the real life struggles, but kind of making it comedic. Like, you know, they can't get enough funding for like something as simple as like a classroom rug. So one of the plot points is that like, one of the teachers, she has deep roots and her family's Italian. And so like she knows a guy where she can get rugs. Uh (laughs) It's just like stuff like that. Unfortunate circumstances that teachers go through and they're kind of just like flipping them on their heads and like making them like really lighthearted and sweet. It's a really good show. The only other person I know is the guy from Everybody Hates Chris. I don't remember what his name is. He was the guy that played Chris Rock. Now he's like older and is in the show as one of the main characters. Cool. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch it. My wife, Rachel, saw it and said it was amazing. Awesome. Corey, what's pop? Cool. I've been listening a lot to the uh, Power Wolf album, Sacrament of Sin. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of my music listening just on YouTube. It recommended this album to me, and I was like, all right, that looks interesting. It has like a big wolf on the front. It's a great album cover. As soon as I did that, YouTube was just like, oh, you just want to see power metal albums now. And so I went down this whole rabbit hole like like Battle Beast, Hammerfall, which I already knew Hammerfall. Are those three distinct bands, Power Wolf, Hammerfall, and Battle Beast? Yes, all of those are power metal bands. I detect a theme in their names. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing about like power metal is it's just like, you know, what if metal was fun? <laughs> <laughs> yes. One of my favorites off Sacrament of Sin is a song called Demons Are a Girl's Best Friend, which uh-huh. is just a phenomenal name for a song. It's so good. And they did another version with, I want to say, Alyssa Whitegloss, the lead singer of Arch Enemy. The music video for that is incredible. I would listen to the original song first, but I would then look up the music video with her. It's great. This album cover is bananas. I often find this with like metal that's in English from bands who aren't from English-speaking countries. Like I don't know whether these are like native English speakers, fluent English speakers, whatever, but they are German. Yeah. And like so often in those sorts of situations, like the lyrics, they don't necessarily stand up to the most scrutiny in terms of meaning, Uh but it seems like what they're doing is just like picking all of the coolest words, right? And just like stringing them together into just awesome sentences. I don't know anything about this genre, really. They're kind of trying to be a little ridiculous and fun or no? Yeah, I think so. You think like Dragon Force or whatever, where like... Mm-hmm. Dragon Force knows that they're Dragon Force, right? They don't think that they're Black Sabbath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're having fun. The best example, this is like another band that I've been listening to, and this is like, a, I guess, a, a bonus media recommendation is Van Canto. Are you guys familiar with Van Canto? No, no, I'm no. not. So Van Canto is an acapella metal band. Mm-hmm. They have drums. Metal drums would be a big ask for a beatboxer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. I was going to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they do have a drummer, but everything else is acapella. If anyone's interested in that, I would recommend the album Break the Silence. It has a, a similar sort of vibe of just like, I am confident that they know that what they're doing is very silly, but they also know that what they're doing is awesome. Yes. I assume from the work that you do, Brian, that you're aware that things can be funny and awesome at the same time. Correct. That is literally my goal. Yes. Yeah. You see this a lot in power metal where there's just like full commitment, even though they know it's goofy, they just don't care. And that makes it so that they own that to an extent that like you can't help but get into it too. I love that. With both Power Wolf and with Van Canto and like, I think Battle Beast and like really any good power metal band, I can laugh about this in theory, but when I listen, I'm banging my head. Like this is, this is awesome. It sounds great. (laughs) That rules. The fact that this is silly has not stopped this from also ruling. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Brian, what's popping? 
What's popping for me is, I believe this is a first for me. This is a TikTok account that Jim Roach, my and Jarek's mutual friend slash collaborator, introduced me to. You guys might know it. It's a popular one called There I Ruined It. Do you know this one? Oh, yeah. No. Okay. So what this person does is basically mashups, but mashups will take the backing track to one song and then the vocals from a different song, but Melodyne tune the pitches of the vocals so that it's the original vocal melody from what the backing track was on. <laughs> so I talked about this semi-recently in a mini episode with, with Layton. There's a million great examples here. Let me just pull one up real quick so you can tell. I'm going to play one where this person, I don't know anything about their identity, took the Mario classic Mario Brothers theme and did lose yourself to the original melody. <laughs> Anyway, it's that style thing. And there are some really good examples on there. There's quite a few videos on there. It's very well produced and very funny. And occasionally there's just like a combination where you're like, what the, like, that's a really good one. But yeah, I love it. It's so much fun. That is hilarious. Cool. Okay. We're going to move on to our next segment and indeed our final segment now. Jarek, do you want to introduce this segment? Yeah. This segment is called Peaches and Lemons. It is a gratitude exercise. We will do one lemon and three peaches, one lemon. It is a shitty thing. It can be a really big or small shitty thing. And same with the peaches. It can be a really grandiose thing or a really tiny thing that has happened to you um, as of late. Yes, absolutely. So three peaches are good things. One lemon is a bad thing. Theme thong, theme thong. Theme thong. It's like the thong thong. <laughs> theme song goes here. Peaches and lemons. Peaches and lemons. I'll start. We're all going to do our lemons first. I'll just say my lemon is editing video. Yeah. <laughs> We've all done it. I'm not good at it. I manage. The struggle is real. You know, when it's going great, it's going great. And then when, say, your audio track gets desynced from the video for whatever reason and you don't know why and you spend hours wrestling with it, it is less fun. So let's just say I love this podcast and I'm happy to put in the time. But occasionally the video is more of a chore than I would like it to be. That is my lemon. I can go next with my lemon. My lemon is that I have been carless for almost two months at this point, or maybe a month, a solid month. Let's just leave it there. It's a lot to <laughs> no, not, not by choice is the point, right? <laughs> not by choice. You're not one of those, I don't even own a TV type guys. You want a car. <laughs> I want a car. I don't own a microwave. Wow. But I do want a car. I own a TV. But yes, I haven't had a car for about a month now. I've been lifting everywhere and it's oh been my. crushing my bank account. Ugh, brutal. So let's just leave it at that because it is a giant can of worms to unpack. Yes. Well, I'm sorry. Living in LA without a car sucks. It sucks. Yep. Corey, what's your lemon, dude? I mean, can I just say YouTube? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> That's a great An one. amazing lemon. Yeah. I find myself regularly, consistently, like incredibly frustrated at the extent to which modern economies of art are so reliant on private platforms masquerading as public squares. <laughs> uh-huh. Yet are weirdly not subject to anything like a utility or a public good. No. Would be subjected to none of it. <laughs> All of the art that I have made for the last seven years is whether or not people see it, whether or not it continues to exist is dependent on whether or not YouTube wants to make money with it, you know? Yep, 100%. That's not great. It is very frustrating to be yeah. at the mercy of some dark algorithm yeah. that you have zero control or input over, and yeah. it's very easy to find yourself on the wrong side of it. Yeah. Good lemon. We've all been there. <laughs> Let's do some peaches. Who wants to go first, Brian? Yes, I will go first. Peach number one, and I've actually talked about this briefly on the show before. I recently purchased a Nord Stage 3 keyboard. 
nice. uh, as my new go-to touring keyboard with the philosophy, I deserve a decent piano since I am a professional piano player. <laughs> and even though it's fucking expensive, hopefully I get to have it forever. You know, I use this as my main keyboard on the road and it was fucking great. Oh, I was so <laughs> happy with this thing. It plays so well. It's just really smooth. It's got very light action, so it feels great. I came back and I started playing on my 88 MIDI controller here, and I was just like, oh, it's like playing a molasses. <laughs> oh my God, this piece of shit. Not to denigrate any brand, but yeah, this Nord, I was just like, wow, I'm so glad I did it. Like having a nice keyboard that's easy to play made the tour a lot more fun since I could just, you know, have good gear and and play good gear. So that's my first speech is that this keyboard that I was like, oh, I was kind of waffling about because it's expensive actually really paid off. Peach 2, I have a giant stack of awesome books I'm looking forward to reading that have been building up over the course of, shall we say, decades in some cases. But just over the last, I don't know, six months or so, I've gotten some really exciting new books so these include uh, Catherine Schultz's, who's a great writer for The New Yorker, among others, uh, memoir, a book that was almost my what's poppin' because I just started it called Word by Word by Corey Stamper, who's a lexicographer at Merriam-Webster, all sorts of fun new things. So I'm excited to have some good books. And my final peach is that it is fucking finally cooling off maybe a little here in L.A. <laughs> and although I have learned, I've been out here long enough to know that it's going to be Halloween and still 80 fucking degrees outside. But hopefully, fingers crossed, it looks like we might be actually getting some 70 degree-ish weather over the next week or so, which would be a welcome change of pace. I was driving somewhere this morning. It was like overcast. It was so nice. Nice. Like, I always love it when it's cloudy here. Hell yeah. So those are my peaches. Corey, do you want to hit us with three peaches? Sure. So first one, I've been doing YouTube as my job for a long time, and I've always been kind of uncomfortable with the idea of doing sponsorships on my work. Like, I've done them, right? Like, I have bills to pay. Yeah. I've always found that they distracted from what I actually wanted to do. So basically, at the start of the year, I decided I was going to take a break. Just for 2022, I was just not going to do sponsorships on my videos. It has been great and has led to me making a lot of my favorite videos that I've ever made. But it also means I've been leaving a lot of money on the table. And so been yeah. operating basically at a loss for most of the year. And so a couple months ago, I decided that I was going to try explaining the situation to my audience and just put that out there and be like, I stopped doing sponsorships. Here's why. Here's what I want. And it would mean a lot to me if you see the value of my work, if you could support me on Patreon so I can keep doing that. And like the response that I got to that was overwhelming. Oh, it's so great. Like it, it went up like $300 in that first month and another hundred the next month. And just oh, like, wow. and the money it's, itself is super useful. But like yeah. just seeing that many people who hear me say like, I think I've done some of my best work and I'm really proud and I, I want to be able to continue operating like this. And to see that many people just agree yeah, and just say like, yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think this is worth it. It's really inspiring. And it's made me really excited to keep doing what I'm doing. I love it. Well, you deserve it. Your stuff is incredible. And I'm glad to see that people are showing up for it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. The second thing, which is sort of more of a broad thing, is the connections that I've built with like other music scholars, mm -hmm. you know, other people in the music theory YouTube community, Adam Neely, 8-Bit Music Theory, stuff like that, people that yep. I know through that but also like actual academics. Cause like, it's one of those things where like when you're doing this sort of like scholarly work outside of the academy, it can be very hard to tell if you're doing a good job. For sure. And so building these relationships, this is how, like I, like I said, I got invited to like do a keynote at a music theory pedagogy conference. And that was really exciting. And like having built these relationships and having these people in my life who like I can trust to like tell me if the things I'm doing are good and who, yeah. who I trust to know whether the things I'm doing are good. Cause that's like, it can often be really hard on YouTube because like if I'm making videos about stuff, people don't know yet to teach them things, then most of my audience doesn't already know the thing and can't speak to whether or not I explained <laughs> right. it well. Like right, right. having these connections, many of them are friends of mine and are really nice to have those relationships for that reason. But it's also just professionally really reassuring to know that so many people who are 
sort of officially academically qualified to do the sort of work that I'm doing think that I'm doing it well. Yeah, that's amazing. And the third one, and this this is not a professional one, but the third one is my cats. Perfect. <laughs> More technically my siblings' cats, but we live together, so they're my cats too. They're adorable. Their names are Xenophon and Coralon. <laughs> nice. <laughs> They have their own personalities, and I grew up with cats, and so just having them around, it's so calming. I'll just hear, like, a scrambling sound coming from outside my door, and it tells a story by itself. Having cats is great. Very grateful for that as well. I love it. Three great peaches. Jarek, hit us with your peaches over there. Okay, I'm going to rip through my three peaches. I made it into the credits, or crawl, of a movie that is coming out. I think the movie will be out by the time this episode is out, maybe. The film is called Something in the Dirt, and I got to work on it by way of Jimmy Laval, former guest and composer, and also known as the Album Leaf. Jimmy Laval asked me to compose Ode to Joy by Beethoven for the movie. And you can hear Beethoven throughout the movie, kind of like playing from the radio, from the car, etc. There's one really big scene where you can hear my orchestration playing. This movie is by Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson. Um, they've been writing and directing partners for almost a decade now. And they've done movies like Endless Spring, a couple more that I can't even off the top of my head, but... The most recent movie that they directed and wrote was Synchronic, which had Anthony Mackie and Jimmy Laval has been composing for them for a really long time now. And so I'm really stoked that Jimmy asked me to orchestrate this so that he can, you know, work on the rest of the score. So yeah, that is peach number one. My second peach is we are rounding the bases on my first feature film score ever. Last time I was on the podcast, I talked about it a little bit. This feature film, I want to talk about a little more. It's called Riley. It is a feature film based off of a short film uh, created and written by my friend Benjamin Howard. And now he called me back to do the score for it. So we've been working together for a long time ever since I've known him in San Diego where he'll have like a short or a commercial and I'll do the music for it. Or I'll call him to do a music video for my project, Small Culture. So yeah, we're doing our first feature film. We're super excited. I'm really personally super excited because according to Ben, I just like had really great stuff to work with off the bat. So it didn't feel like I was like scoring, scoring the film. It just kind of felt like we were flying songs in that I had pre-made with the score and movie in mind. And we just like tweaked it accordingly. I wrote a couple of new songs for the movie, but overall it was based off of this one song that I had and I kind of like kept revamping it, revamping it until, you know, we found stuff that would stick in the movie. So yeah, that's my second peach. And my third peach is I get to see NSP live for the first time ever when you guys play in LA. I've technically seen NSP live if you consider the recording for the acoustic record that y'all have. But yes, this will be my first time seeing NSP live. So those are my peaches. Jarek, incredible peaches, one and all. <laughs> Everyone a triumph. Uh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Corey, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Again, we're really big fans of your work. Layden, sorry she couldn't thank join so today because she also loves what you do. I'm so happy to talk to you. And I kind of like you were talking about, it's so great to see the sort of stuff that you do, the music theory on YouTube. It's it's something I love and you do it so well. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. And thanks for the invite. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find you? YouTube is the main place. I was going to say 12-tone videos, but YouTube is just where it says 12-tone. But on Twitter, it's 12-tone videos because 12-tone was taken in like 2013. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. And they haven't posted since then. So. Oh, Maybe a little bonus lemon there, but <laughs> but no, um, mostly active on YouTube and Twitter. I do also have my own podcast, which I suppose I should probably shout out. Yes, please. It's called Ghost Notes. Uh, it's with Noah from Polyphonic. Cool. And he and I just you know talk about music. We've been doing it for like a couple of years now. It's it's been really great having that space to just like sit down like this with someone who like thinks a lot about music like I do, and just talking about music and seeing where that takes us has been really cool. And so. It's on all podcasting platforms. It's produced by Nebula, so they get the episodes a month early, but then it goes everywhere else. So if you don't have a Nebula subscription, you can just listen to it on Spotify or Apple or 
wherever podcasts go. Perfect. Well, everybody, thank you as always for listening. Now, nor- normally late night, late night, I actually called her late night. Normally <laughs> Leighton would do the sign off at the end of the show, but I'm going to do it this week and <gasps> far be it from me to belabor the end of anything. I would hate to drag this out longer than absolutely necessary because we've already, we, we've used so much of people's time already. Honestly, we're doing them a favor by having these awesome discussions and making them public. So what, what I consider what we do to be a public service. And certainly this was a super fun week for me personally, because we got to talk about music and music theory and all that stuff. And I would never want to take advantage of people's generosity or use up any more of their very little free time. We're all busy. We all have stuff going on. I would hate to be that person who shows up at the end only to waste people's time. My number one rule, as anyone who listens to this can verify, is that you have to be respectful of others' time. You have to be respectful of their patience and you have to be respectful of what they bring to you. When they visit you, they are a guest on your podcast, all our listeners, I think of them as guests in my home, and I would never want to use up their generosity. So with that in mind, let me end this quickly and quietly and just say to everybody, thank you so much for listening. (laughs) Sorry. Oh, I meant listening. Of course, I mispronounced that word. Uh, You know what I mean? Uh, It's not listening. It's listening. Uh, I don't need to tell you that. Uh, But occasionally I do have, uh, you know, I'm working on, I'm working on my diction. Uh, I could talk about that a little bit too, but uh, I do want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, Silent T. I almost said listening, uh, which my eight year old, I think would think was very funny. Uh, But everyone, yeah. Thank you so much for, for listening And just as a real quick sign off, so not to waste your time any further, uh, thank you. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore night, or email us at LeightonNight at gmail.com.